the most important thing you get out of a university degree is learning how to learn. And that's, you know, understanding how you can make your own a new skill. You learned one subject, but by doing that, you also learned how you, yourself, you're, you're able to learn. What is the environment that gets you in the learning mode? That's of tremendous value, I would say, for, for the next coming years. There's a revolution taking place right now. Talent and intelligence are equally distributed throughout the world, but opportunity is not. The talent economy, the idea that at the center of work is the talent, is the individual. Welcome to the Talent Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Estes. Today's guest is Dr. Greta Corporal, a sociologist of work and organizations at the Oxford Internet Institute. Greta uncovers the changes to the world of work as organizational boundaries become increasingly permeable. Hi, I'm Gretje Corporaal, a very difficult Dutch name, so you can call me Greta. I'm a sociologist working organizations at the Oxford Internet Institute, which is uh, one department of the University of Oxford. My research focuses on the rise of online labor platforms, what we call broadly within the scope of digital transformation and the future of work. I study how companies embrace online platforms to bring remote workers into the workplace. Well, I'm excited to talk to you. uh, Three years ago, almost to the day that we met at a Work Without Limits event, and you presented what I thought was a very academic paper. And you're like, yeah, I just kind (laughs) of threw that together. In 2017, you wrote a paper called How Fortune 500 Companies Are Embracing On-Demand Platforms. What inspired you to write that framework and that guidance? That's a very good question. Kind of as academics, we're not really evaluated on writing these kinds of reports. Usually write academic papers for academic journals that are very difficult to assess for industry. I was kind of the first one that studied firm adoption of, of, yeah, what you call online talent platforms. It was very difficult to get the access to firms to actually get them talking. And we felt because it's such a new thing, we had to just write something for them, to write something for industry. So we put this report out, one, to, you know, share the knowledge with them and not waiting for three, four years before finally an academic paper is published, as well as just getting our names out that we are the ones that are studying this. And yeah, also to be visible and for companies to reach out to us. Well, that led me to following your work. And more importantly, now today we're sitting on Oxford's campus in the Oxford Internet Institute. And we just had an amazing conversation at lunch talking about how we can continue to build on the work that you started in 2017. So it's really exciting. Before we get into the details of your work and and all the amazing things that you're doing, your background fascinates me. So it's not like you went to school to become a workforce change agent. You actually have a degree in psychology, which is a pretty common degree but also in classical violin and modern Japanese studies. So yeah, it's, it's one of those things I was reading. Can you help me understand young Greta going to school and saying, these are the things I'm going to study? Just take me through a little bit, because I think it becomes relevant later in the conversation. It's a broad range of studies I studied. One of the things uh, my dad said, I don't allow you to graduate before you're 27. So I got all the freedom to study whatever I wanted to. So I know it's a very unique family environment I'm from and and very supportive of learning. What was the thinking behind the age of 27? He was like, you can work for the rest of your life and you're probably going to. So why would you start early? Just enjoy the freedom you have now and just develop yourself. Yeah. Wow, that's really, there's there's something to that. Yeah, it was a 
we didn't all meet, meet the requirements. Some graduated a little bit earlier, but uh, most of us really embraced the time to, to go to uni. I started off studying psychology. I found it very interesting, but I could do it in one day a week. So I had these four days of uh, freedom. And so I had a hobby playing violin. I was like, well, let's just see if I can get into the conservatory. I did the admission exams and I got accepted. So I did that for a couple of years. And I first thought I would become uh, a researcher. I knew that. But I thought I would become a researcher studying how children learn music. I was thinking, you know, combining the academic side with practitioner being a, a violin teacher. But um, along the way, I kind of parked that idea and went in a very different direction. And that uh, was going more into organizational management studies, but having this sociological, cultural lens to it. One thing that I found very interesting uh, during my time when I was studying violin, I was working in all these ad hoc ensembles, like a small orchestra or a band or four-person music group with very diverse backgrounds, speaking very different languages. Within a couple of weeks, we would put on a top performance. That's where differences between people were an add-on and uh, it helped to create something very unique. And I saw that in a business setting, as globalization moved onwards, that was a key challenge. So that's where I moved in that direction. That became my object of study for my dissertation research. As part of that, I also realized a lot of the work in these global settings happens remote. So remote work is very dominant. And towards graduation, I real it was the rise of, you know, platforms such as TopTel, Upwork. You have other ones, smaller ones like People Per Hour. And that bring this model of work closer to the firm, make it way more accessible and way more scalable. And that's why I decided this is, I, I have all the resources to study this and this is what I want to do. Yeah, and that's what's brought me here. Well, when you were doing music, you know, music, when we were talking earlier, was a common language. You know, so people could come from all yeah, sorts of cultures right. and dialects and, and the music that you were playing, the music that you were creating was sort of a common language. Right now, there's a conversation around location bias or, or just location. Do I need to be in the same room to be able to move an idea forward? And, and the irony is we walked around the Oxford campus today and there is a sense of community. There's these beautiful buildings and there's a sense of, hey, this is where this type of learning happens. And we saw some of the departments. Yet we're starting to see organizations and part of your work is actually saying no location doesn't matter, or, or there's, there's parts where location can actually inhibit learning. Help me understand what you learned from your experience of doing music to understanding how that commonality of music and then how location matters or doesn't matter. Again, a very good question. Music is, is, is kind of an odd comparison here regarding work because timing is very important. And when you do it remote, you always have a delay, so it's never going <laughs> to get anywhere. And that's where, you know, like making the music happen, you have to be in the same spot to be strictly on time, have the right, you know, pace and rhythm. But getting the right understanding where you want to go to with the music, that's where being in the same room and seeing what someone else does and getting the feel of where they want to go to is, is very important, especially as it's, it's a live performance. When you think about new ways of music, using more electronic kinds of music, maybe it, you can do it remote, but I, that's not my expertise. I was trained as a classical <laughs> violinist. People might be able to argue 
in business. Well, I was trained as a, a classical business person. I was trained that you show up at nine, you leave at five and, and work is done in, in meeting rooms. And so music itself, I think probably from the time that you were playing in the conservatory to now has, has changed in many ways. But business is following that, that same digitization as well. I think that's where the comparison does make sense because, you know, making music, it's not only what's happening on the spot, but it's also the preparation that goes on before that. And that's where musicians just lock them up in a room at home or in their, in their study space and just practice their own pieces before they come together. So it's only those, those times where they are together rehearsing and giving the performance that's actually face-to-face time. A lot of the time that goes into doing the work is not face-to-face, is asynchronic, is individual. That's where, you know, when you think about work, especially high-skilled knowledge work, there's a lot of aspects to it that you might have to sit down for a few hours on uninterrupted time to just figure things out. And that might very well be that, you know, the place where you can do the work, that type of work the best is at home or in a coffee shop, not being interrupted or, or easily approachable by your colleagues, asking you questions and getting you out of that deep thinking time. There are types of work that lend themselves to remote work models where you can work remotely as well as, you know, for companies to bring those experts in. Those experts might not want to work in your office. They might not want to have your full-time job. They might prefer their own workspaces or their independence, but they do want to work on a project with you. Where platforms come in is offering an infrastructure for you to tap into those types of people and the talent and expertise they bring to your company. When you were doing your research for the 2017 paper and you talked to a lot of Fortune 500 companies, what did you learn about those organizations that you didn't know before? Like, What were the surprising things that you learned when talking to companies that were starting to embrace on-demand platforms? One of the surprises was that a lot of assumptions are being made about why companies adopt online labor platforms, why they adopt these, these new ways of working with external talent. And the predominant assumption is that it's for cost reasons. That's just to get things cheaper. And the assumption is that it's unproblematic. And neither of them is true. Often it's, it's not for cost reasons that they start to tap into platforms. Give me an example of one of the, the interviews that you had where you were like, oh, wow, I, I was assuming just people would globalize talent because it costs less. One of the interviews was how they really embraced this innovation mindset and that it was really to bring in expertise. And that, that shifted my understanding completely, that understanding that the experts that uh, work through these platforms, they prefer to work as an independent freelancer running their own company. They're not interested in full-time employment and you cannot access them through your, your vendors or your, or your staffing agencies you're already working with because they don't want to work with those types of companies. That's counterintuitive to what everybody yes. believes a lot yes. of times. And, yes. and I think a report came out even this year with the Freelancer Union and Upwork about a vast majority of people that are freelancing choose to freelance and don't want to do location-based traditional staffing. Exactly. Or full-time employment for that matter. Exactly. That's kind of what we found as well. And where companies think like, well, we already use staffing agencies. We have this Fortune 500 usually work with two, 300 vendors already. Why do we have to adopt this platform? 
And kind of the answer there was from the firms, again, uh, this is their perspective. If you don't do it, you miss the top talents because they w don't want to work through these, these agencies. Or well, they have a have. choice. Yes, they have a choice to work through a platform. And so if you want to keep being competitive, keep being innovative and bringing in new knowledge into your organization, adopting this innovation mindset is helpful in that sense. Yeah, I always advocate when I when I talk to folks, it's something that everyone should at least try. Go out into the market and engage with a, a freelancer that's choosing to work in this way, because you're to your point, you're not going to get access any other way. One of the amazing things that academics do is frameworks, and, and you have a 3S framework as you, you think about this. Can you explain to me not only what the framework is, but, but how would I think about implementing it? So this 3S framework captures the motivations of why firms adopt these online labor platforms, taking as a counterfactual and, and kind of the, the baseline that they already work with external people. It's not that that's something new. They have done that for over four to five decades. They work with independent contractors directly. They work with staffing agencies already, or they have design or marketing agencies or other vendors they're working with. So work happening outside the boundaries of the firm is already happening. So why now do they embrace these platforms as a new avenue for that? And that's where, you know, like I said, the assumption was that that is cost reasons. And I find the main reasons are not cost because they, they have already externalized work. First of all, it's, it's skills, having access to skills they cannot find otherwise that are unavailable through their existing suppliers, so to say. And often that's very high skilled knowledge work where these platforms come in. The other one is, is scope. That's where you can find talent, not only with your local region, the bounds of where your your providers are sourcing now, but going beyond those regions, for instance, uh, hiring people at the other side of the country or the other side of the world, just where that talent or the, the people having the expertise are, are situated. And the other one is speed. The companies that have done detailed pilot studies, we see a vast difference in when you have to find an expert, the time to find an expert and get the work done that timing is vastly different from using an, a conventional staffing agency where it can take six to eight weeks through a staffing agency. It can take two to three days with, with a platform. So that's a very different pace of work, uh, speed of work that, that we're talking about. What are some examples of how this framework plays out in adoption process for a company? So what we see is that there are very different ways companies are adopting platforms. It's not a standardized approach. Every company is different in their setup, in their organizational structures, and also platforms enter the organization in different ways. Sometimes it's entering at a level of a local line manager that has like the autonomy to sign a contract with a platform. Sometimes it's, it's procurement or HR, or sometimes it's an odd department such as finance or an innovation department. You did just call finance an odd department. For when it's onboarding <laughs> a platform for work, I think that's an odd yeah. department. Well, it, 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 Usually you would not think of finance as the one that onboards a platform. And I think that's one of the things we talked about at, at lunch was when you look at an organization, it's a wide variety of places that are starting to engage these online platforms. Samsung had a great example where it was spun out of a finance innovation organization. Exactly. It was their research center in the U.S., the person working under the head of finance was in charge of exploring on-demand platforms to address very pervasive challenges in the organization. And what we see is kind of where a platform enters the organization 
is very important for how it's being adopted and the value that they get out of it. When you think of, okay, procurement probably be, you know, what you would think of where such a platform should be embedded. But there are a lot of existing organizational structures and processes internally to work through procurement with an existing vendor. And there are vendor management systems or VMS solutions to kind of keep track of every provider they're working with. And they just try to put a platform in their existing processes. So it's Which then slows it down. It and- slows it down. Then they are like, why do you want to use the platform? We already have these two, three agencies that are saying they can provide the same talent. So there's also a lot of resistance to change. And what you see there is that staffing agencies are a human-based service. They're known to be more tailor-made towards the need of the organization. That's how they conventionally have been selling themselves. And the platform has a different setup. It's partly technology and networked technologies underlying it, scalability. And so the way you're onboarding it has to be a bit more standardized and can be less tailor-made. So when you fit it into the existing processes, you'll encounter a lot of challenges organizationally. I think sometimes people approach on-demand as, hey, this is going to be just incrementally like that. And it is fundamentally different. I mean, one of the things that I often talk about is when I started working with freelancers across a ton of different projects, I had to reskill myself on how to go and engage and hire, how to write down a project. Whereas before, to your point, a human would show up from a staffing agency. We'd have a conversation over coffee. They would go away. I'd get some resumes. And it was a very manual and human process, which made it sound very bespoke. And then when I started working with freelancers, I would up front, I'd have to go and write down stuff more and requirements. And it was more, a little more work on me in the front end, but then the projects went faster and I got the right expert and there was a lot of benefit. So I had to retrain myself. You often talk about, and I believe this too, if organizations don't start working this way, they're, they have a risk of falling behind. Do organizations in your experience or the people that you talk to understand that there is a risk of falling behind if they don't understand? Or is it, oh, hey, look, you know, this year we were going from 100 vendors down to 80 vendors and that's the plan this year. Like, how do they think about on-demand platforms? It varies a lot. I think in the past couple of years, people just got to know that platforms exist and are out there and they should take them more or less seriously. That was kind of the mindset that they were. And now there's this mindset, we have to do something about it. We really don't know how, but we realize that we have to. We have to invest in what does the this solution offer us because we know our competitors are doing it. There's nothing that motivates an executive like, hey, my competitors are also doing this, so I better I better yes, you're uh, right there. Yeah. Take a look. So you belong to a group called the World Economic Forum. Help me understand, number one, what the World Economic Forum is for those that are listening that may not understand it. And then your work in that group, you're on one of the the committees that's really trying to understand the importance of this space as it relates to the future of employment and economic sustainability. So this is my second year I've been involved with WEF. So WEF has different centers. And one of the centers I'm working with is the Center for the New Economy that looks at, at broadly how digital technologies are transforming economies. And as part of that, I was first involved in in a council, uh, the new social contract. When you think of, you know, changes in work, so not only, you know, the the adoption of platform-mediated models of work, but also, you know, automation and a broader conversation on people analytics, etc. 
where should we think about when we think about the social contract? It's it's not a legal contract. It's a it's a social one. So it's very difficult to have conversations about okay, how is that changing and what should it look like? Tell me a little bit more when you say social contract. So you could think of, you know, the the employment agreement you have, but usually a, a social contract is kind of an agreement between the government, organizations and employees about, you know, the employee works a certain amount of hours for an organization and in exchange they get a salary, they get benefits, they get a pension. And some of that might be, you know, through the government, some of that might be directly through the employer. That's kind of country dependent. But it, for instance, when you think about the U.S. setting, having a W-2 employment contract is often a requirement to get a mortgage. So when you work as an independent contractor and more people start to work on that basis, you would create a situation where a lot of people cannot buy houses anymore. And that might not, from a social societal perspective, that might not what you, you want to go to, creates instability in a society. Thinking about, you know, how these what we call institutions or rules of the game in a society have to change because the employment relation is changing. That's part of conversations around the new social contract. When you're sitting around the table, imagining everybody at the World Economic Forum, it's a big table. Who else is around the table thinking through that and having that conversation? That's a broad variety of stakeholders. So how the World Economic Forum is set up is prior to their Davos meeting where they present their plans, they have their summit in, in, in Dubai where all the councils come together. So we had people from industry such as our co-chair was uh, the CEO of Upworks, Stefan Kasriel, last year. We also had people from organizations that measure labor markets, conventional labor markets, such as the ILO, the International Labor Organization. And we had a bunch of academics present that study uh, labor markets and work. So in that way, I was involved. They asked me back again this year. And this year, we focus on the new education and work agenda Building upon the work we did last year, kind of mapping out the changes in work. What are the implications for education to overcome skills gaps that are emerging between you know, jobs that get automated and the jobs that become available? How do we train the future workforce, so to say, as well as how can we capture changes in, in jobs? The WEF jobs report is, is, is one of the ways that they try to contribute to that conversation. In a broad range of countries, they survey employer organizations about, you know, what they expect changes will be in the jobs that become available and kind of looking at with what skills become obsolete, what skills there will be a gap and kind of having a conversation about, okay, how can we better map out changes in, in skills, changes in jobs at a labor market level. I think, again, here platforms play a very important role. Well, they have real-time data. <laughs> they have real-time data. So I think um, traditional, and this is kind of where sometimes I challenge uh, the, the labor economists a bit, that they can learn actually learn something from what platforms do, because there are a lot of emerging skills that are captured in the world of online labor platforms where they have the data about like, hey, suddenly a new skill emerges that wasn't there before. They create more fluid taxonomies for matching. And this is often data that a lot of traditional labor market analysts would love to have. And they're looking at how can we also capture that for the broader labor market to really understand, you know, what is happening. I'm imagining in a world where I'm in college and I, I go to a website and it's like, well, last week you had to have 
statistics. And they're like, next week you have to have like soft skills and, and liberal arts. And then the next week, you know, you, we're getting to a point where if I just look back at my career, if you look back at your career, I mean, 10 years ago, what I would have wanted to be and wanted to study as compared to now is just drastically different. I think Stefan and, and the World Economic Forum came out with uh, some data that was saying, look, your shelf life of your college education is five years. Maybe that's what your parents were telling you to do is, look, just keep learning. Well, I kind of challenged Stefan uh, big time on, on that remark. I disagree with him there. I think your college or university education is not only to teach you the hands-on skills to do the job now. The most important thing you get out of a university degree is learning how to learn. And that's, you know, understanding how you can make your own a new skill. You learned one subject, but by doing that, you also learned how you, yourself, you're, you're able to learn. What is the environment that gets you in the learning mode? That's of tremendous value, I would say, for, for the next coming years. So, you know, learning to work, that's where, you know, the hands on hard skills to do your job. That type of learning might be have a shelf life of five years. So I say the three objectives of an educational degree is learning to learn, learning to work, and learning to work together. You could call it hard and soft skills. I don't like that dichotomy, but kind of learning to a job is not an individual thing. Getting work done is not something that depends on you. It depends on how well you work with other people and are able to integrate and use making the best use of both of your skills to get work done. And that's, I think, also where university context helps you to learn a lot of those skills. So learning to learn, learning to work, learning to work together. And, you know, learning to work might be that the shelf life of those skills is shorter. But even there, if, if you would think historically, like what, what did you learn in university? It, it, was it still valid five years later? I was sitting there while you were talking. The thought that was going through my head, I was trying to remember one of my classes or something specific, but I do remember learning to read. I remember going to the library and whenever I was curious about something, I would go and I'd pick up a book. Like I, I learned that if I, I'm going to date myself because it was before the, the massive internet, <laughs> but I'd go and, and find it and, and I'd read about it and then I'd put it down and I'd go yeah. to the next thing. And so- the, Evaluate it, information sources. Yeah, That's it, like one skill, you know, knowing the value of, okay, this is rubbish. This is the good stuff. I'm going to focus on that. That's something what you learned in school to, to make those distinctions. Learning to learn. Yeah. It's actually, it's something that I had not thought of. As you look forward, if I give you a crystal ball and you're giving advice to people now and say, hey, look, in the next 10 years, you know, this is how I would tell you to think about it. This is, and I'm not saying specific skills, but how should people be thinking about the future of the way they work? My answer there will be, you know, focusing on, on one part of work because work is not the same. There's not one future of work. There are multiple futures of work. Kind of where I focus in is kind of the high skilled knowledge work, work where you need more and more years of training to become a specialist and where more and more people will start to work independent because companies cannot provide full-time jobs for those specializations because it's just too specialized. And that's where I think a platform model really helps to bring that expertise in when you need it as an organization. It provides uh, meaningful uh, jobs for the people that are, you know, that, that have that expertise and can take the freedom and, and flexibility and also the risk that comes with working as an independent contractor. So that's where I, I see this phenomenon really to, to grow. 
the key impediment now is is not there that there are not enough people that want to work this way. There are plenty of people that want to work in this way. There are not enough organizations that know how to adopt this new way of working. And when you say don't know how to adopt, is it they don't know how to work remotely with someone they haven't met? Do the structures not support it? It's a both. It's a yes and. Part is not understanding how do you create a technological infrastructure to quickly onboard those people, safely exchange data and, and, and work outputs, as well as the opposite of onboarding is to you know, close, close the systems down for them. Again, that's another part you have to think about. But when you're employed, there isn't an end to your employment. You know, when you work with a freelancer on a project, there's a scope of a project. You start the project, you do the project, the project ends. And look, you may go and re-engage on another project. Yes. But when you're an employee, it's almost like, yeah, show up every day and we're just going to keep going. And it's, it, that's a very different way of looking at, yeah. at working. Yeah. Yes, that's true. So part is technological, but the other part is social. Like people don't know how to write a job description anymore. That's where it starts. <laughs> you know, you outsource that to either to your category manager at procurement or they even don't know how to write. It's someone within the staffing agency that does it for you. So knowing, you know, how to cut up work identify and isolate job descriptions task-wise. So think about, you know, what skills do you need to get part of it? What do you need to do in-house? Where can you bring in some external talents to do work for you and, and you integrate it within your organization when that work is done? It's a very different way. And then, you know, the social skills in terms of how do you manage people? We talked about it over lunch a bit and you mentioned that you never want to manage employees anymore. You want to have that egalitarian basis of working with people rather than managing them top down. But you said it so much better than I did at lunch with an egalitarian approach, but I, I like it. Thank you. <laughs> so kind of what I got out of it is managing freelancers is fundamentally different from managing your employees and you cannot demand the same things. And that's where you really need to educate your workforce, your internal workforce. We think, you know, it's not that they're going to be replaced, but they are going to work with a set of freelancers, each of them. And they're not going to work for you. It's not working for you. It's working with, which is a completely different model. With the risk that comes with an independent freelancer, you also get freedom and flexibility. So you can decide when to work, how to work. And, and that's where your management style has to change very drastically. So learning how to manage or work with a blended workforce where some are employees, some are independent contractors, some might be through a staffing agency and finding more, not a unified approach, but a different approach that matches their mode of employment, I would call it, that that's something that, that organizations really have to invest in and train their, their in-house employees. Yeah, I think the, the thing that I've seen where people struggle is they try to take their mental model for you know, how they've worked with employees or staffing exactly. firms and they try to apply it to everything yes. and then their expectations are, are disappointed. And so it's like, oh, this is a bad experience. I'm like, well, tell me how you did that. And it's a completely different way. But it, it, I think to your point about learning how to learn, once you leave college, we forget that when you go to work, you still have to learn how to learn within that context. I've been very fortunate that I spent my career disrupting myself every two years and constantly learning new organizations and new areas. And, and a lot of people haven't. They, they stop learning how to learn at their job. And so if something's hard, like, oh, it's just hard. It's like, no, it's just, that's how you reskill. Like <laughs> that is literally how you get 21st century skills by going off and, and learning these new things. Mm -hmm. And that's also where a lot of the 
the ways you're promoted or you're evaluated, these these frameworks don't accommodate failure. They don't, but they all talk about it. Every management yes. team would get up and say, we have a growth mindset until the team fails. Yes. <laughs> and, and the yes. rewards discussion so happens. Even everybody knows it's part of reality. It's it's not something you get that, that gets reinforced or rewarded. That's why I make this big argument. Like if you really as an organization are thinking about, you know, how can we grow our use of these, of these online platforms to bring in, bring in external talents, really adopting this innovation mindset and, you know, just give a pocket of money to a line manager and say, okay, you're going to do 10 projects and, you know, just see where it works and where it doesn't work and learn from that. When I give this pitch to companies, because I, I give a lot of talks uh, f- for industry, they often say, oh, we just start very low scale, just low budget. And I'm like, well, that's not really where you're going to learn where the value is for you, because you could do that work through a staffing agency as well. So why don't you also explore this 10, 20K project with an external expert and see what it gets you there? And so looking at the extremes and, and giving a person to 10 times source a project through a platform and get the learnings there, I think that's where, where companies should invest in. And also they should take it very seriously and think, okay, how can we make learning and as part of learning failure, part of your, your job description, that that's something you have to invest in is very important, especially as you know, we're not only facing, you know, the, the, the changes in, in, in external labor, we're also facing automation, we're facing changes in HR and people, people analytics. There are a lot of transformations happening around work. So having this, having this mindset of innovation and learning, and as part of learning failure, embracing failure, I think is very important. A lot of folks will say, well, this is too hard. I'm like, well, if, you, if you're not going to climb that hill and learn that, what about the next one called automation? Or what about exactly, the next one called exactly. working yeah. next to the, the robots or AI? Yeah. And if you think you're not going to be disrupted more and more in your career than you're reading different websites that, that I do, it's really interesting. I, I, I think the big takeaway is learning how to learn from, from this uh, conversation. <laughs> This is my favorite part of the show. I've got five questions that you have not okay. seen. Okay. It's called Rapid Fire. I'm going to ask you these questions. The, the one thing that we do let all the guests do is you get to ask me two questions that I haven't seen. So it's only fair enough. I'm not going to ask you five. You get to change. You don't have to, but you can ask me too. So ready? First thing that comes to your mind. What's one thing about you that's not on your LinkedIn profile? I have a lot of house plants. That's my secret hobby. Nice. Creating an urban jungle. And that's where I prefer to work. <laughs> if you could trade lives with any one person for a day, who would it be and why? I think it would be with Angela Merkel. I think she's such an amazing example for women. I would love to step in her feet and see what her work life looks like on a daily basis. We should give her a call. I'm going to send this piece directly to her people. If you're stranded on a tropical island and you can only have two things, what would you want with you? That's a very good question. I guess matches and a flashlight. <laughs> very practical. Way to go. <laughs> what book or movie has inspired you the most over the past year? The book that I found very, found very well written. It relates to my work, of course, is the book Temp. It's written by Lewis Hyman, and it gives a very good historical perspective on the rise of temporary work in the U.S., I'm based in, in Europe. I'm I, Originally, I'm from the Netherlands. So I found it very inspiring. And I learned a lot from reading his book and really understanding, you know, the, 
transformations in work in the U.S. and giving this historical perspective on why is it that now temp work is, is becoming more normal or is, is keep growing, growing in, in right. the U.S.? Yeah. What is better, being radically curious or having great attention to detail? <laughs> I would say both, but you want me to choose. You have to pick one. Radically curious, for sure. You know why I asked that question? Because I'm waiting to find the person that says it's attention to detail. And I want to just explore it for like an hour. Well, I want to give you the opportunity to ask me two questions if you'd like. So one of the questions I have, Paul, because you, one of the first people that, that really jumped on this new way of working, what was it that drove you into exploring, you know, platforms, online talents? What was it in your job that you really felt urge? Was it a clear business urgency? Was it, you know, you mentioned that you keep inventing yourself every two years. So I'm always told I have an unreasonable bias for action. There was a lot of times in working at just various companies where the answer is, oh, we don't have the resources. Like here's the best mm -hmm. idea in the world. And, and so I lived like, you know, 17 years working at companies and continuing to run into a wall where an organization of people wanted to accomplish something But it was always a constraint on budget or it was a constraint on headcount or it was a constraint. Like when I started working with freelancers, I'm like, well, no, all like the art of what was possible, a lot became possible. And so you weren't stuck in a position at a job where you had to just sit around and do less than you thought you could do or, or have to go and do incremental things and you could do amazing things. And, and I think that's one. I think the other one was the diversity of thought an experience that freelancers were bringing to me in general and teaching me because they didn't come from my shared context. They didn't come from my organization. They didn't come from where I was born. And they were all over the United States or all over the world with different experiences. You know, that really lit my brain up and saying, wow, like every interaction is teaching me something that I want to know to stay relevant in my future. And so in a lot of ways, maybe it's just anxiety of me wanting to stay relevant and continuing to, to do stuff professionally. That's kind of what you learned when you once started working with, with online freelancers. And this is why I continue the work I'm doing today. I, I want to share that thought with other people. Yeah. Like, don't go sit in a yeah. meeting and say, you can't do this. Don't atrophy in your job, like reinvent yourself and, and learn from diversity of thought. And so that's what I spend my time doing now. But I like your, your first answer. I liked it a lot. How I understood it is there's a lot of untapped potential in your internal workforce that your existing organizational structures and models, they are inhibiting the realization of that potential. And by just giving opportunities at the level of a local line department, you're able to release that potential okay. and, and for them to have more flexibility in designing projects, which people to engage, you see like it's, it's not, it's not only a change in your bringing on online freelancers, but it's, it's, it's a complete change of working. You should see it as a broader organizational change when it comes to well, work. Well, it's radical empowerment. Yeah. I mean, the, the, when I gave my team, I, we kind of moved from a traditional staffing model to the freelance model. And I said, everybody's empowered to now go and use freelancers. And it was the, the craziest thing. Every morning people would line up at my door and say, hey, can I do this project? So I had to bring everybody into a room one day. And I said, you're all adults. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and from this time forward, you know what we're trying to accomplish, go forth and mm -hmm. do epic things. And you're empowered to do that. And that's so rare in business to say, I'm empowering you at the line level because you know, now if you have a problem, you know, here, let's, let's work through it. If you think mm -hmm. you have a question about IP, like mm -hmm. let's work through those things. Um, but that radical empowerment was something that 
I guess I always assumed was universal, but it's, it's really not in organizations. Mm-hmm. People don't feel empowered. Well, I think when you look at a startup, maybe that's, that's where that mindset yeah. is still, but as an organization grows, yeah, we put structures and process and evaluation criteria in place, bureaucracy, as we call it, to kind of make sure overall everything is working well, but there are also well, downsides. What managers do. Yeah. Like yeah. what would a manager yeah. do in a large organization yeah. if they didn't, yeah. you know? So now when you think of, okay, you just released staffing.com as kind of creating an online community of learners about like how staffing is changing and rise of the talent economy. When you look, that's an online online platform to have that conversation. When you think more broadly, what conversations need to happen to capture that expertise and that knowledge about what organizational changes are, are needed to really get organizations ready for this new way of working. So I joined staffing.com and, and the talent economy podcast because I had spoken at all the individual events for all the various platforms and, and folks that are talking about this, but there wasn't a, a place for everybody to come together and learn and, and have a conversation as a community. So when I think of what can be done, like this way of thinking is something different. There's something there, it's frameworks. And, you know, I think about in the 1950s and 1960s when they started, you know, the early roots of design thinking. And that was brought to market a lot later with IDEO, like they brought the concept to market. Now you can't go into an organization that's not working on some form of design thinking, you know, being more inclusive, being more customer centric and all that sort of stuff. And then you look at 2001 when Martin Fowler and Jim Highsmith, you know, did the Agile Manifesto, right? They wrote down this belief that waterfall models of doing development needed to change because you had to be able to respond more directly to changing environments and and take customer feedback and and all of that sort of stuff. So I think there's an opportunity when you look at those movements that had to change people's mindsets and change a culture in response to an ever-changing way we work and live that needs to be implemented here. And so I'm I'm excited about uh, the work that you've done over the past couple of years and the conversations that we're having, because I think, you know, helping people understand that this is different. You know, this is sort of like the, the waterfall model of creating software had to change. And now everybody's starting to lean in. There's a framework and you can't, you know, I don't have any books have been written and podcasts that are written and, and internet sites dedicated to, you know, scrums and, and agile development. And so I think we're entering into a phase of on-demand talent and platforms that needs that sort of structure, which was, you know, open source structure that continues uh, yeah, to kind evolve. Of, kind of a framework for the change management that has to happen. And, and gives it language and gives it yeah. ways to practice yeah. and, you know, put some structure around it. So. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. If somebody wants to learn more about the amazing work that you're doing at at the Oxford Internet Institute or or contact you, what's the best way to reach out? Just reach out on LinkedIn or Twitter. And we'll make sure all that information is is in the show notes. Excellent. Thank Thank you. you so much. I'm your host, Paul Estes. Thank you for listening to the Talent Economy Podcast. Learn more about the future of work and the transformation of the staffing industry from those leading the conversation at staffing.com, where you can hear from experts, sign up for our weekly newsletter, and get access to the best industry research on the future of staffing. If you've enjoyed the conversation, we'd appreciate you rating us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, or just tell a friend about the show. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of The Talent Economy.